Einstein and Sock Monkey, Episode 10, Undercover User Experience Design, recorded May 17th, 
and uh, some really great, well, looks so. like some great news coming up. And and we have the social media minute is back. Yay. Nick Armstrong, thank you, Nick. Yeah, so uh, be listening for that. And but let's go ahead and move on with the news. So the first news item is uh, WordPress 3.2 Beta 1 is now available for download. Uh, and this is actually has some pretty nice features in the upgrade. So I haven't played with it, just read about it. This uh, so is just the beta. It's right. just the beta. So they're expecting the uh, formal release uh, hopefully by the end of June or near the end of June. So it's not far off. Okay. Uh, and they're definitely wanting people to uh, bang on it. So if you're a developer and are willing to install the beta on a non-live site and uh, play with it, they would love that. Uh, but it includes some performance improvements, um, and WordPress always could benefit from some performance improvements. It's fantastic in so many ways, but oh, performance yeah. is definitely uh, an issue at times with it. So I'm excited to see how much performance benefit there is. Uh, their visual editor is now full screen. Really? And yeah, I'm really excited to see that because you know currently you're always editing your content in a window that's about a quarter of the size, if that, of the entire viewport yeah i'm constantly dragging the little always dragging the little corner but then every time you go to a new edit page and you got to redrag the corner again yeah totally so apparently they've they've made a full screen editing view and that that they also mentioned that that full screen editing view is available in html mode as well really so that would be really nice for our clients who uh have wordpress sites and we have many clients with them we built a lot of that stuff yeah wordpress is just it's so like you said it's so good for so many things it is, and this is a little bit of a side note, but I heard an interview with Matt Mullenweg about who's the who runs Automatic, right? And is started WordPress yeah. exactly, and and they are responsible for maintaining it now. Um, maybe three, four months ago, something in that time frame, and he he said he claimed that ten percent of all the websites on the entire internet or entire World Wide Web run WordPress now. I heard it was fifteen. No way. Where did you hear that? I thought it was from Matt. I saw he, I could, a video of him at South by Southwest being interviewed with some Yeah, was maybe, that, that might be where I saw it. So, but 10 or num- 15, either way. Either way, the number was like, whoa. So I don't know if that's true, but if it is, that makes it the yeah, that's largest ridiculous. single CMS hands down. And probably that would make it outweigh probably the next closest three if it really was that many. In any case, it certainly is a great, um, great content management system. I sure like it. Uh, and also, let's see, other quick features here. It has a new uh, facelift for the administrative user interface. Uh, and not a whole, whole over, you know, not a wholesale overhaul, but a mm-hmm. uh, facelift. Um, has a new default theme called 2011, picking up on their uh, pattern of the last year's was 2010. Yeah. Um, and this one includes rotating header images and some other nifty features. And it looks like it's a dark background with light text by default. I'm sure that's all adjustable, of course. Yeah. Um, but that's nice that we have another wonderful theme as a default theme. Uh, and here's a strange feature. I was kind of surprised at this. In the dashboard, if you log in as an admin, if you're using an outdated web browser, it will notify you that there's a newer version of that browser available. That's beautiful. I'm, <laughs> I'm like... Why and how? Well, I, I, the reason I think that's awesome is, is if, if it really is ten or fifteen percent of the web, and people log in to see this stuff, that's a good point. Then, though, at least that number of people are going to be, you know, not forced but encouraged actively to upgrade their browser. Yeah, and with I know the way WordPress has been doing things is just this one-click update thing, and it's easy. It's easy to figure out if you're what 
the browser version is with a little bit of JavaScript or whatever. Right. But uh, and so that's great to to hopefully it'll kind of bring things into the you know. Yeah, that would be. I hadn't thought of that angle on it, so that would be wonderful if it helps bring that up. Just seemed very odd because it has nothing to do with their system, right? It's like a totally external thing, and here they're giving you this feedback on this external thing that really. I can see depending on, yeah. I see your point, but also depending on what they want to do with WordPress, right? The you know the, the yeah. what do they want to support it having could, a more recent browser yeah. gives them a lot more capability. Yeah, too, it gives them a lot of flexibility. So speaking least. of that, they have officially announced that with this release, Internet Explorer six is no longer supported. Nice. Yes. So we're uh, <laughs> all on the bandwagon there. Excited about that. And then the last piece uh, for the. Uh, Tech people out there and the uh, the people working on the back end of all this, um, it has new minimum system requirements starting with this version, which is PHP 5.2.4 and MySQL 5.0. So um, make sure your servers are uh, up to date on those before you upgrade to 3.2 when it becomes uh, officially available, either uh, June or shortly thereafter. Yeah, well, just I know that today, I just updated today the Einstein and Sock Monkey. WordPress install it to 3.1.2. Mm-hmm. So it's probably not far away. No, it shouldn't, way. it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. So really cool. anyway, exciting announcement for our, all of us who are into the world WordPress world out there. Yeah, awesome. Well, um, I wanted to mention that there is a great article on sixrevisions.com. It's a great um, web design mm-hmm. blog. And they it's all about, it's entitled Improving Usability with Fitz Law. And... I know that if, if you're a UX designer who finds that because designer is in your job title, some people mistakenly that believe that what you do is purely subjective or art, artsy, you know, just, oh, you're a designer <laughs> or not real work, um, you need to point them to this article because it's a really good example of the science and the, uh, the structure that goes into a good user experience design. Cool. And uh, Fitzlaw is, I'll, I'll just read a bit about what the kind of the, uh, summary of what Fitz Law is. It's centered around the ma- a mathematical equation, and I don't, Ron maybe can understand the equation. I don't. <laughs> I'm looking at it here <laughs> on the screen. Um, but it's it's used to illustrate the time it takes to react to reach a target object from one point to another. And a target object in the context of a UI on a website or software or whatever can be any de- interactive element such as a submit button, a hyperlink, or an input field in a web form. And the idea is this, that the quicker you can reach a target object, the more convenient and easy it is to use. Sure, and that makes I good mean, sense. I it's, mean, it's, it's kind of advanced common sense, really. Right, yeah. Things are closer it, together. It doesn't take as long to go between them if you're using a mouse. Right, but one of the, some of the interesting things it points out in, the, in this article is if you use this equation that fits, the psychologist came up with in the 50s, actually, way before the web, um, it's, not, you know, it's not just make it huge and giant, the bigger the better, there is a point at which it starts kind of dipping down and being less usable. Mm-hmm. So there's sure. kind of a sweet spot that you want to hit with some of these sizes of buttons and also uh, marrying this together with the Gestalt law of proximity, you know, things close together should be fit. related. And, yeah, yeah. And then, and talking about the idea of a prime pixel um, is the pixel at the, the pointy end of the arrow uh-huh. on your cursor and how long the equation in, that they show is the different distance from that prime pixel to the target. Hmm. And okay. figuring out how to get there and having the right size target at the end and 
it you know, there's a lot to it. Sounds so, perfectly geeky. I look forward to checking geeky. this out. <laughs> it, I think it's good for anybody, designer, developer, whatever, to read this because so it's pretty accessible. It's not uh, no, super it's not obscure. Too, no, no. I, mean, I, th- I think there's just enough in there for people who are really geeky to get it, and enough uh, for you know the average folk to realize to, get, to have some good takeaways. Like, okay, I need to do this, group things this way, make things differently sized for different reasons. Hmm, very cool. So. That's neat too that it's based on a law from a long time ago before the web, because uh, I'm I'm curious to see how if that applies to mobile or not, you know how that might apply to that's mobile. That's a sites. really good question because you don't have a cursor. But you're using your finger, so it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe I don't know. Maybe I'll have to read it though. Well, I'll give it a read. It's at sixrevisions.com, and we'll have the link in the show notes. Excellent. And my uh, second news item for today is uh, just this month, Ericsson, the phone company. Um, published a study on the use of mobile with a particular focus on mobile apps and um, very interesting stuff. So we have a link to the PDF. Uh, It's about 16 pages or so, but it's a quick read. Um, Only about half of its pictures, so it makes it go faster. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's excellent, excellent. So if you're doing any mobile development or app development of any sort, I highly recommend it because it's very up-to-date, obviously, information based on a number of studies that they've done globally. Uh, So here's some really, uh, I thought, some interesting stats and amusing to some extent. 35% of United States Android and iPhone users interact with applications on their smartphones before getting out of bed. I'm one of them. 35%. (laughs) Do you? What app do you use before you get out of bed? I I use this uh, app called Awaken for my alarm clock. Uh And you can set playlists and stuff Uh instead of a... Right. And so I I, I don't have a bedside clock. I just plug my phone in and set it up there. My wife does the same thing. And um, when it, and it like fades the music in, so you wake up all peaceful, unless right. the three-year-old is banging on your way. <laughs> <laughs> but so I, I, I pull that, and that kind of wakes me up, and then I kind of usually hit snooze or whatever, but then I'll kind of read my Facebook feed or Twitter feed, whatever, kind of wake myself up a little Wild. bit. Wild. That's interesting. I'd run across some other stat. It wasn't in this study that something 70-something percent of people that own smartphones sleep with them within reach. <laughs> It's really interesting how personal these yeah, devices well, are, are getting. Like extension of my arm. So they they agree with your usage, Steve. They say the most <laughs> common activity when people oh, are using, see that, is, yeah. using, is checking Facebook when they're in bed in the morning, these 35%. So uh, anyway, that was kind of an interesting stat. And they've got lots of really good data in here. Um, a couple of really interesting things on apps. I've been you know leaning toward the camp of HTML5 and web apps as the way to go long term, just because it's more sustainable from yeah. a cost and time materials, you know, basis to develop and maintain these things, and to reach a wider target audience. But they have some incredible arguments in here as to why apps are so popular and useful, and um, maybe aren't going to be going away anytime soon. Uh, and they don't say so, but it's kind of going to be an uphill battle for the web apps to to make inroads because apps are perceived as easy to use because they require little or no navigation through file structures. Mm. I thought that was interesting, and it's true, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're just interacting yeah, yeah. right away. Uh, generally, they don't require inputting of addresses, searching, or clicking on links. In other words, apps give users direct access to the content or the online service of their choice. Mm. Um, so that convenience and ease of use uh, yeah. Yeah, I could, you can. Well, you could also build an app in HTML5. Correct. So, I mean, I mean, package it in its own app little wrapper. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You call, call those. There's a name for those that are HTML5 apps that I can create a. Right. Yeah. Have an instance on the 
desktop. So to I speak. think part of that, totally guessing here, I haven't read the study or anything, is that when when something is a dedicated app, it feels more in depth. Just just kind of cognitively, you think, oh, this is a special thing mm-hmm. for this site or this service or mm-hmm. whatever, as opposed to a website like ah, it's on the web. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I'm fascinated with this, and I'd like to understand more about the psychology or the human yeah. nature, behavioral aspects of this. But uh, you know, to me, the web is this great endless stream of stuff, and apps are very limited, right? They do one task, generally mm. speaking, but they do it really well and really fast, generally speaking. Yeah, <laughs> um, the good ones do anyway, right? Um, but apparently, you know, I mean, usage behavior is showing that, that in general people prefer the one app to do one thing and maybe it's something about the way we work that just makes that work better for most people. I mean, I certainly love all the apps I use. I've got lots of them too. So Yeah. And I definitely would say I probably use apps on my phone more than I use my web browser. I use both all the time, but there's probably I definitely use bias, more apps. Yeah. Slight bias to apps for me. Um, and then one last point on this that I thought was, was really insightful. Um, app use bridges the experience across devices. If you have an app on your iPhone and iPad, mm, many associate mm-hmm. the activity with the app rather than the device. Hmm. So th- the study concludes that while people are currently in a smartphone honeymoon, as they call it, <laughs> the smartphone itself may turn out to be easier to replace than the actual apps. When new devices come along and capture the interest of consumers, they may indeed find themselves with shiny new things in their hands, but the habits that have developed around apps could prove harder to change. Hmm. Uh, and there are, you, know, you can see trends to that already, right? I mean, this, yeah. this uh, ubiquity of apps, right? Apple now has the App Store for the Macintosh. Right. So you yeah. know that's heading in the app direction. And I've heard a lot of techie people complaining that with like the, uh, what's the TV set for Apple? Apple TV, I guess. Apple TV. Or, that they're oh, yeah. just waiting for it to have apps you know, that they can build for the Apple TV. Um, well, it's an, it runs on iOS already. Right, exactly. That's the idea. So yeah. it runs on iOS. Why don't they open it up for some app development? <laughs> so interesting interesting stuff. Uh, furthers the discussion on HTML5 web apps versus native apps and mm-hmm. uh, ongoing discussion for sure. So if any of you out listening have thoughts on this, I would love to have a discussion on our blog on the website. Yeah. Uh, Einstein and sockmonkey.com because uh, this is a topic that I'm, I'm just really curious about. About I'd be curious to know if you use apps more than you use the web and just what you think in general of apps versus web apps, native apps versus web apps. Yeah, when I had that, um, I, we had the interview a couple episodes ago with Josh Clark. Right, yeah, the tap worthy. Tap worthy. He mentioned it in the, what, the workshop I was in, he talked about this, Not he, he didn't get as much time as he wanted to talk about the native versus web app. But you know there are times for both, really, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it, it's a it is a good a good discussion. It's an important discussion to have because every single, if you have a website, you really ought to be should have some sort of mobile experience, whether it's a another well said, kind well of um, uh, theme like WordPress. It's easy; you can get a lot of different themes for that are mobile yeah, optimized, and it notices oh, it's a mobile thing. I'm going to show the mobile the mobile uh, theme. But you need to either need to have that, or uh, maybe an app is a way to go for your site or service. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a good, good, good stuff altogether. Definitely. And speaking of, just to conclude that topic, I, uh, as we mentioned last time, I've given a, a three talks now on mobile in the last seven days. Um, actually, <laughs> wow. last six days. And um, the one today was rec- a recorded webinar. 
And uh, assuming that recording works out, I will post a link to that as okay. well. Uh, it's about a one-hour uh, webinar um, on the anyway on a presentation that I gave on mobile. So if you're interested in this stuff, uh, some more information and fodder for discussion there. Cool. Well, uh, I the last thing we have for news today is uh, I just wanted to mention the Google I/O Developers Conference. There were uh, this past week. There were a lot of announcements. What was it? Monday and t- wait, it was last week. Last week, yeah. Yeah, Monday and Tuesday last week. And um, if you don't know what Google I.O. is, it's a conference for all Google, registered Google de- uh, developers of, of any kind. And it was in San Francisco, and they had a lot of pretty big announcements. Um, the first ones I wanted to mention are a- very Android-centric. Uh, the new version of Android is be- going to be coming out soon, and it's called Ice Cream Sandwich. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> and the previous one was Honeycomb, and then before that was... I just recently uh, heard what the what, what the theme was in yeah, all you heard it? Desserts yeah. and it's by uh alphabetical yeah. order. Gingerbread, yeah. Froyo, Eclair, Donut and Cupcake and before that was beta, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um so it's going to be coming out soon and what they're doing is they've kind of had it's kind of been skewed kind of one version for uh smartphones, one version for tablets, mm-hmm. which was kind of the honeycomb. And so they're trying to kind of make those one Hmm. Uh, experience in one code base, kind of like iOS. Oh, makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, yeah. I mean, you can have different ways to, to present things on for the app or whatever. But that's what um, Ice Cream Sandwich is, so uh, it's not an actual ice cream sandwich if you are confused. <laughs> and, um, it's they're making all, me hungry, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> they're also, well, you should see the logo. Do, you should Google the logo. It's really, it's a it's an Android-shaped ice cream sandwich. It's pretty funny. Oh, looking. cool. Anyway, um, they also are going to start offering movie rentals through Google. Wow. Um, they're really moving into this world of uh, a media company. They're wanting to, you know, at, at one second you think, oh, they're taking on Microsoft with oh, their Google awesome. apps and so forth. And then you're like, oh, they're taking on Apple with their music player and their movie rentals and stuff. So it's going it, to be about the same price of, as uh, iTunes rentals in the okay. same terms. Um, but it's going to be for Android phones and tablets. Cool. And also for the developers are going to love this one. In-app payments for the Android store through Google, through Google um, they're going to, instead of taking 30% like Apple for in-app payments, they're going to take 5% of the transaction, which was, I watched the the presentation on this and the, just the room was like uproar. Yeah, I can imagine because that is six times less yeah, than Apple takes. Yeah, the developer gets to keep 95%. 95%. Yeah, wow. it's great. Wow. And so, and you know, no, and so what, what they're doing, I see all these things are trying to really encourage uh, developers to use their stuff, obviously. Um, And the big thing is this app system can, or this in app purchase can be implemented with just one line of code. You just drop it in there, done. Pretty impressive. Did they talk at, at all about um, improving the quality of apps on the app store? I mean, like reviewing them and vetting them better? So they didn't as much at all. Crapola in there? No. no? Oh, okay. That's, and th- that's, that's something I heard, I heard a lot. I, I don't personally have an Android device, um, but I've heard from a lot of people that it's just, it's for one, it's fragmented. Yeah. And some apps work on some devices, some on others. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Then and there's no oversight, right? I mean, you can no. literally upload your app now to the marketplace and it's available in a few minutes. There's no really? review. So I've actually heard of a couple of people, you know, there's some very malicious apps out there that look legit. And yeah, yeah and it's like, well, that makes sense that that would happen if and there's that, no review actually, process at all. Yeah, that's actually the reason I did not 
jailbreak my iPhone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I did sure. I did to try it out. Oh, did you? I just I wanted to see some of the other stuff, and then I... I color inside the lines too much to even bother. <laughs> I, I soon put it back, like, after a day, because there's so many... The Sadia store, there's so many apps in there that may be great or maybe not, right. you know? So... That you know, people complain about uh, the Apple I, App Store for I, iPhone and uh, and iPad, but it having having some sort of oversight is helpful. Yeah, didn't talk about that at all. It is because they certainly don't want malicious apps in there that are going to either you know infect your phone or break your phone or sure you know drain your battery or do things that you really don't want to have happening. So right, exactly. And uh, the last uh, section I wanted to mention from the IO. A Google I.O. conference is maybe possibly more interesting to our listeners is very web and Chrome browser centric. And they mentioned that there are 160 million users of Chrome. And that was imp- amazing nice. to me. Last year, they had nice. 70 million. Wow. And it's up to 160 million. Wow. So I recommend it to everybody. I use it. It's open right now on my Mac. <clears throat> I recommend it to a lot of people. I've just had a lot of problems with other browsers myself. It's just a personal thing, but... Yeah, I love Chrome. It's so fast. That's yeah, what I like about it. It's very fast. and I, they're, um, I wait the least, and I'm a very impatient person when I'm working. I just want to get my work done and right sitting there waiting for things so to happen. So much of my world is centered around Google stuff, sadly, maybe. But <laughs> if I'm using Chrome, I know that it's going to be, it's going to work on that browser. Firefox, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So um, anyway, also they, they mentioned the Google Music Beta. Is there cloud-based music storage? Uh, service, mm-hmm. I guess. Heard a little bit about that. And just a it's going to be, it'll stream to any computer, Mac or PC through an app or um, on the Android. And it kind of works on the iPhone from what I hear. I don't, I can't try it out yet. It's an invitation only thing. Anybody at the conference got an invite, but you'll, otherwise you'll have to wait. You can uh, go to music.google.com to get, to request an invite. But you have to upload all the music yourself. You can't buy it yet. And some people are kind of wondering what this is about because or how this is going to play out because there's no licensing at all. I mean, you can upload anything you want as long as it's some sort of MP3 and then stream it. But it's just kind of one step toward the next thing, which is the Chromebooks. It's because everything is going to be on the cloud. And these Chromebooks that are going to go live in a couple of months um, oh, are going right. to be... Oh, right, computers. Yeah, I've heard about these. Right. I've actually seen one, yeah. They're Chrome OS based. Right, it's like a netbook, but it's running Chrome OS. right. And it has hardly any hard drive at all. Are they still calling that Chromium or uh, Chrome OS? I think they call it Chrome OS. Okay. I but, think I um, heard that as either a code name or an early release name. Right, but a long everything time ago. is going to be in the cloud. Right. Music, photos, the thing that, apps. The thing that I really wonder about, though, is you know, there's lots of times when you don't have an internet connection. I mean, right. even on 3G, right, there's areas with cruddy coverage or a gap in coverage because you're not near a cell tower or something or in the middle of nowhere right. or an airplane. Um, then what? Well, it's de- it's definitely not something that is for everybody. I mean, it, the thing does have a three G chip in it, mm-hmm. and it's going to be a, a kind of a subscription model. It's like twenty bucks a month for one of these uh, Chrome books, and in, included in that is is a limited three G connection. But we're not quite to the point where everything is wired up or mm-hmm. wirelessly wired up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where, where it, Good one. It's completely off the, uh, you know, you can deal with it completely offline. So it's, it, I think that's probably why they're really targeting 
enterprise systems and education because right. if you're using it at work or at school you probably have an internet connection exactly. most of the time that makes sense and i mean the other side of it too is if people are writing good html5 web apps using local storage you True. should be able to do a lot offline and that's what the google gears thing was right and that's is, all been that's been dropped of course in favor of the html5 web apps but, oh okay but you can do better now with the local storage capabilities oh. of html5 i had no idea yeah they dropped support for that. Attention. i'm not sure when that was but it's in the maybe by, might have been about a year ago, but it's, yeah. Google Gears is no more. Hmm. And the <clears throat> big thing for me is they, they have Angry Birds now available in, <laughs> I, in the Chrome browser. I heard about that. So how do you play it with a mouse then, I guess? You drag them yeah, first? Yeah, I, I, I only played it on it. phones. So. I downloaded it, and let's see here. Does it work pretty well? I'm going to have to come around and take a look it's, at it. It's been a while. So I, I, I did it like the first day, and I couldn't. Here we go. It's completely in the browser, which is kind of, I don't know how they do it. I don't know. But it's not Flash. I think it uses Flash in some form of that. I don't know. No idea. I'm just a UX designer. What do I know? But oh, I'll have to check that out. Hold on, hold on. No problem. While you're getting that going. Um, yeah, the, like I said, the gameplay is great. So I'll, I'll shut it off so nobody has to hear that. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's that's it was a is a pretty pretty cool deal, and everybody was awfully excited about that. But so there's a word you mentioned that I wanted to uh, discuss briefly. So what does the cloud mean to you? Because I think it means different things to different people. Yes, um, I, I have this Google, not this Google, this Dilbert cartoon on my on my wall by my desk, and it's a Dogbert. And he's like the consultant, right? Of course. And they're like, what should we do, Dogbert? And he's like, cloud, blah, 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 cloud, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> That's perfect. And they're like, oh, you're such a genius. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it is kind of a buzzword, but it to me it just means anything that is not local on my computer. It's somewhere on, on some server, some place. Some of that is storage-based. Some of it is processor-based, service-based, things like that. Gotcha. So. You know, Flickr, I store my... Flickr is just another way of saying that I store my photos in the cloud. Okay. You know, things like that. What it, do you think? Well, so to, it's interesting because I think that's maybe the more common uh, understanding or expectation right. of the word. And mine mine maybe, I don't know how, how I would define it, but uh, or categorize it differently. But to me, it means a network of servers that are working together. So, for example, Amazon's the easy example. So S3 is their storage facility, right? right? So there's probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of servers running S3. Sure. And part of the idea is that not only are they load balancing, but they're data balancing as far as storage. So that if one server fails, you still have full access to your data if everything is working correctly. And same thing on the processor side, right? So there's Amazon EC2. So you can write web apps and run them on the EC2 servers. And it's distributed computing. So there's many, 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 many servers, and you're buying a certain amount of processor time, and you don't care which server it's on. Right. And if one server goes down, it just transfers that process over to some other server, and your web app keeps running. So to me, that's the cloud, is this network of computers that are owned by whoever you know, to do a specific thing. Yeah. But the reason I ask is when I was reading the Ericsson study, it, the one really annoying thing is they use the words cloud and internet completely interchangeably as if they're synonyms. I get the feeling that to the average Joe, that's becoming more a synonym. It really is. And that's is. really interesting because it's like, yeah. It's well, just I mean, the define internet. internet. 
for me, Ron. <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of well, tough. Well, that actually is a good point. I hadn't thought of that. But I mean, the internet is an interconnected network of servers, right? But they each do That's their what own you thing. Cloud was. So, right. But you mean they work together. Right. Cloud. Okay. Yeah, the cloud ones, in my mind, they all work. You know, so Amazon has their, or Hotmail, right? Mm-hmm. I met a guy a few years ago who was one of the managers for Hotmail for Microsoft out in the Bay Area. And, um, and this was probably 10 years ago. And they, at that point, had 10,000 servers to wow. run Hotmail. And that blew my mind at that time. Um, so to me, that's like, that's a cloud, you know, uh, is that. But the internet as a whole... They're all just independent servers connected through routers. But I don't know. It's just another one of those interesting discussion points. I think the meaning is changing. Yeah. But then at that point, well, I don't know. If the internet and the cloud are the same thing, then why is cloud any different than what we've had for 20 years <laughs> or 30 years? Anyway. Yeah, I, I always think of cloud as something that is stored elsewhere that I use locally in, in a very general if sure. I had to put it into one sentence, that's a good. That's a, I think a good description as to what the popular meaning, yeah, exactly. meaning of it is, and that will, probably has already usurped any technical meaning yeah. for. We'll, we'll the have majority. to check Wikipedia for the expert okay. opinion. We will, we will do that. <laughs> we'll get back to and you. then change it if we want. To. <laughs> yes, but uh, the last thing about the IO IO uh, conference was they gave everyone at Google IO got a free Samsung Galaxy Tab. Were you tablet. there? <laughs> no, but the guy at work that I work with a lot was there. Oh wow! And so, and he showed it to me. It's this. It's this uh, special edition hmm. of the Galaxy Tab, and it has a white back on it with little Android logos all over it. Cool. And uh, they get got a Verizon Evo 4G hotspot with Whoa. three months paid up. Whoa! And a Google Chromebook whenever they ship. Everybody got a Google Chromebook. Holy mackerel! <laughs> I know. So, wow. well, I just wanted to say that this is jealous. absolutely brilliant marketing <laughs> because Google could have spent a ton of money on TV spots or whatever, but they not only got a huge amount of press for giving massive amounts of stuff to people, but the, every single developer there, even if they were maybe an iOS developer but doing like Google web stuff, now they want to be an Android developer because, oh, I've got this Android device. Exactly. And I would have loved to get one to play around with, that's for sure. Sure. So I, they're really pushing hard, I can see, to get more and more people on their platforms in any way, shape, or form. And that's not at all surprising. So anyway. Cool. So that's the news. And um, let's uh, move on with the feature. Okay, we have, uh, as everybody knows who's been listening our book club book that we're uh, doing right now is U- uh, Undercover User Experience Design, written by Kenneth Bulls and James Box. And uh, we had the great opportunity uh, last week to interview Kenneth Bulls over Skype, and uh, as he's in the UK and we are not. <laughs> and uh, we ha- I thought we had an awesome uh, discussion with him about a lot of different stuff. So let's go ahead and listen to that now. Okay, so we are here with Kenneth Bowles, author of um, Undercover UX Design, and our current book of the well, not month. It's our current book current. of the book club. There you go. <laughs> Whatever we want to call that. Um, thanks a lot for being on with us, Kenneth. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Um, so uh, tell us, give us a little background about yourself before we get into the book. Tell us where you are, what you're doing now, and then, you know, so folks kind of know who you are. Okay, sure. Um, well, let's think. I've been uh, in user experience, IA, whatever you want to call it, for um, about nine years. 
um, started off in government, uh, which is obviously an interesting place to try and practice good design and yeah. user focused work. Um, then spent some time working at a dot com in London. And about three years ago, I joined Clearleft based down in uh, Brighton on the south coast of England. And I've been there for about uh, three years or so, as I say, um, heading up a lot of a whole bunch of projects for various different uh, clients, uh, from small startups to uh, large media companies and so on. And I've just recently uh, decided to take the plunge into the uh, terrifying world of self-employment and freelance work. So oh. I'm, it's interesting, uh, interesting transition point at the moment, learning a heck of a lot uh, as I go, but it's all very exciting stuff. So I guess that's a kind of yeah potted potted history of what I'm about. <laughs> so and so what what brought about the move from Clearleft to freelance? The scary world of you, as you mentioned. Well, so the primary reason is I'm writing another book, um, which you know, I'm not I'm not going to bother plugging here today because it's still not written. But um, <laughs> uh, as and when it's written, I'm sure it'll be fantastic. But uh, <laughs> we are too. <laughs> so having been through the process of writing this first book. Um, while working at, at, at Clearleft, it's a pretty difficult thing to do. Now, Clearleft were fantastic. They gave me a bit of uh, bit of leeway. And we're pretty understanding. That, you know, it, it's pretty uh, all-consuming writing a book, but it's still a heck of a, an undertaking to do while working full time. Mm-hmm. So I've decided for this one, I need to take a bit more time, um, really to try and get some momentum up and do large blocks of writing and research and everything that goes with it. So I decided freelance is the, the way to go and hopefully I can get enough, uh, you know, design project work uh, so that then I can build up a bit of cash and then not have to work for a bit. So it's really just having the flexibility uh, to write uh, on a more regular basis uh, so I can really get into the zone and really, you know, drill down into the subject. So that's really the main thing that's, uh, that's caused it really. You know, sad to leave it, uh, you know, clearly after a fantastic team, really great team. Um, but it just, you know, I, I couldn't see a way to make it work without losing my mind. That's very cool. Can, can you talk at all about what the topic of the next book is, or is that uh, under wraps? No, no, that's fine. I can talk about it a little bit. So it's got a provisional title of uh, Designing the Wider Web. And so over the last six, 12 months, however long, I've, I've been fascinated by the life of the web beyond the desktop browser. And this is obviously a topic that lots of people are talking about. But I think there are some fundamental uh, misconceptions or fudges that are in circulation. You know, we seem to have this false dichotomy of the desktop web and the mobile web. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reality is far more nuanced and far more complex than that. So it's really a book about the future of the web and where it's going. So in terms of uh, diverse inputs, you know, touchscreens, gestures, mice, keyboards, uh, you know, um, you know, whatever else, uh, voice and so on, um, through to displays. You know, we're going from the tiny sort of Android screens up to enormous, you know, 50-inch plasma, descri- uh, you know, plasma tellies or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and the web is becoming viable across all of these different uh, types of technology. So it's really a question of how we understand how to get the best designs um, working across all of these enormously diverse platforms. So it's something that I don't think people have really understood the impact of. Uh, I think it's going to have a huge uh, effect on the way we design. And I think it's going to hit us a lot sooner than we think. So I guess the book's my attempt to try and help the industry recognize the magnitude of the problem and then particularly uh, to give them some advice on how I think it could be tackled uh, and some good practice from theory and from design on 
how to get the best out of the device and the context and the users, um, the screens and the inputs and the connectivity that you're you're working with in this wider world. That's really exciting and and a topic near and dear to our hearts. So we've talked yeah. about mobile on the podcast a little bit, and uh, I am really excited to see that book because that's a yeah. I, I just think it's where the, like you said where the web is heading, and I'm I'm just so excited about the everything you said there. I'm really excited to read about that. So. Right. Well, fingers crossed. I'll let, you know it'll end up being worthwhile. Um, hopefully, you know, because I'm setting aside all this time to dive into it deeply. It should be. So, I think the plan for that is that's probably going to be um, hitting shelves, as it were, probably winter of this year, so sort of oh, Christmas great. or January or something like that. Wonderful. But we'll we'll see how that goes. So, circling back to your current book, can mm. you tell us a little bit about um, what the impetus was behind that book. What inspired you to uh, write the undercover user experience book? Hmm. Okay. So, you know, as you're aware, it's a book that I co-wrote with my colleague at Clearleft, uh, James Box. And he and I were at a conference uh, doing, a, doing a talk in, um, in the Netherlands somewhere. And we were just sort of sat in a hotel room. And it was a relatively sort of pretentious talk, <laughs> um, sort of fairly high level. You know, I like to do the occasional talk like that. And, you know, we were going through it and saying, okay, we're, we're pretty happy with it. We've done our rehearsal. And we thought, oh, this is pretty high level. It's pretty pretentious. Are people going to, you know, people with less experience um, or who maybe don't think quite in the same sort of, you know, weird way that we do, are they going to really understand what we're on about or are we wasting their time? And, and the topic just kind of got round to, uh, you know, newer entrants to the field or people who are practicing UX, maybe in a less privileged position than working at somewhere like Clearleft, which has a fantastic adoption of UX and understands it thoroughly. And I've been doing mentoring um, through the IA Institute for about, let's see, about five years, four years, something like that, uh, which I find tremendously rewarding. It's fantastic to, you know, to be able to do my part to help other people get into the industry and uh, achieve the, you know, the things they want to. Um, and a lot of the people that I speak with are people who are trying to transition into user experience from a related field. So uh, a lot of the time it's developers who've sort of seen, uh, who found themselves increasingly fascinated by design and you know, starting to try to get into that field. Sometimes it's visual designers who want to get a little bit more strategic, for instance. Um, you know, I've even had you know, marketers, project managers, and people like that who I've talked to about uh, this 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 mindset, this cause of, of user-centered design that's kind of captured their imagination. So I have plenty of experience trying to help people uh, move sideways and, and try and gain traction in companies where maybe design isn't the high pro highest priority. I also have experience of doing this myself in some of my earlier roles. As I mentioned at the start, government isn't a particularly um, easy place often to get design going. So I had to learn mostly the hard way by making a whole bunch of mistakes and by upsetting a whole bunch of people mm -hmm. um, how to how to try and get you know my small victories and obviously by accumulating a bunch of them to, to turn them into larger victories. So we thought we had something we could offer. Um, Clearleft, as I say, supported us uh, fantastically, and we were lucky enough to, to you know to convince new writers that uh, they should trust us as, as novice, unproven authors. Um, and the rest is history. So that's really kind of where it came from. Yeah, I, I really like how Ron and I were just talking about this earlier. I, I like how pragmatic the book is mm. and how it, it's very light on what kind of waxing eloquent in the philosophy of UX. <laughs> and, you know, because I like the very first line of the book, we won't tell you why user experience matters. You already know. Well, Moving that's it. On, it's 2011. Know. I mean, people, yeah. 
yeah, people know that sort of stuff. Uh, we we wanted to make it a deliberately short book. I mean, you know, the, it's short size is definitely a feature rather than a bug as far as we're concerned. Um, <laughs> obviously, Steve Krug, you know, his, his books are uh, you know, famous and slightly infamous maybe for being short, pithy kind of reads, and we were aiming for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's very easy, I think, to get philosophical and, as you say, to kind of in a wax lyrical about what what is the true nature of user experience design and perhaps that'll be in some you know maybe i'll, I'll write a an impenetrable third book that talks about <laughs> that sort of stuff uh, who knows <laughs> i don't have a problem with that kind of stuff well you know there, there's there's a place for it oh yeah uh, but you know user, user experience design is all about knowing your users and we had a very tight focus on the sort of people we we're writing for and we said you know well we find this sort of stuff interesting about you know definitions and and you know philosophical debates it, it's not the right place for it right. so we definitely tried to strip all that out so you know so fingers crossed it seems to have you know been the right decision people have responded quite positively to that you know like how you've mentioned multiple times in the book you say good design now is better than perfect design later oh yes absolutely I, that's something um, that I, I a lot of new folks to the ux field uh kind of have this i don't know if it's like this perfectionism slant uh-huh. to them it's like it's got to be the absolute best possible thing no you know no compromises at all and yeah i think i mean that's understandable yeah. you know i certainly used to have sort of similar um it'd be nice <laughs> it would be nice um but you know we all want something right. um, <laughs> i think sometimes it's easy to adopt that mindset because we know that realistically that's going to be compromised so we think that by aiming for 100 percent, we'll get 70 percent whereas Actually, a lot of the time, I think it works out that if you aim for 60%, you might get 65%, and it's a lot less work. So you get almost the same results yeah. without, you know, finding yourself grounded to the dirt and making lots of enemies. Um, so this is really what we're trying to do. I think there's also a lot about, um, about the agile mindset really kind of pervading this book too. Um, it's all very well to build fantastic arcane documentation and concept models and things like that. Um, but if they don't make it into a product, then they, then their net value is zero to the world. Mm-hmm. So I'd far rather give, um, you know, a few hundred thousand users something that they can get on with pretty damn well for now than make them wait two years with, with nothing or with a dreadful site or app or whatever, and then give them what I think is perfection. Because the other thing is that within that two years, what I think perfection is, is certainly going to be different to what perfection looks like in two years time so there's a lot of that kind of mindset running through as well so it just seems to me a natural uh, and logical way to try and do it you know I mean, perfectionism is understandable but it needs to be tempered by a very healthy dose of reality absolutely uh, so that's that's the intention and in the book you talk about agile a little bit and uh, that brought up a question for me um how do you feel about the agile process you know are you seeing what do you see as the trends do you see more teams moving toward that it seems to me that it's a fairly small fraction of people that I interact with that use it, but it seems like a very powerful um, way to both do design and development. So I'm curious what you think about it yourself and if you've worked with it. Sure. I'm a, I'm a known agile sympathizer. So I, you know, I wrote a book, <laughs> a book. I wrote a, I did write a book, but not about that. I wrote um, an article about agile design for a list apart back in 2008, actually quite a little while ago now. Um, it's something I've, I've, studied quite a lot for me it's a sensible logical and realistic way to build products however um it's 
as with user experience design, frankly, it's it's frequently misapplied, it's frequently kind of corrupted, and lots of people who claim to be practicing agile really aren't. And then, of course, the people who who uh, say they're not practicing real agile are just are just as vilified as the people who aren't. And it, it becomes this sort of big definitions debate, which we're right. terribly familiar with from user experience design. I think the I think the two methods of, of design and user experience, of, of user experience design and agile, actually have a lot more in common than people think. There's this uh, again, this dichotomy that we we like to believe in that agile people. Let's I mean, let's throw some stereotypes at it. That agile people don't really care about quality; they just want to get stuff out <laughs> the door quickly, and it doesn't really matter if it's any right. good. Whereas to throw unfair stereotypes at the UX people as well, we want it to be perfect, and we don't care how long it takes, and you know. It, if we're not in full control and we stamp our feet and get a little bit annoyed. The reality is we want the same things. We want great products in front of consumers, in front of customers, you know, helping them do their, do their stuff. Um, and the design process being heavily iterative is very much uh, aligned with the agile process, which is heavily iterative. It's a question of trying something and seeing if it doesn't work and seeing if it works. And then, you know, using this kind of fail fast philosophy to build it towards something that does. So I think there's, far smaller a schism between the two uh, departments as as people think. In terms of how I'm seeing this within the kind of user experience world, it's definitely a thing now. It's definitely um, a big deal. Every user experience conference I go to, I go to has some kind of agile oh, theme yeah. through it. Um, I, I think... Agile is maybe heading for a little bit of a trough of disillusionment, just the same way that user experience design is. Um, as people realize that it's not necessarily the answer on its own. You need to have fantastic people working in collaboration, playing well with others. Mm-hmm. You can't just change your process and expect everything to work. Sure, all comes um, down to people in the end, doesn't it? Absolutely. So you need you know skilled people to get the best out of both, really. You know, both design and agile. Um, so I think maybe at the moment people are asking questions about well, what does agile mean and what you know are there any evolutions beyond that this whole kind of post agile movement, which I think is pretty sensible in places. Um, and a lot of user experience people I know are actually quite actively engaged in that movement as well, particularly around lean startup and uh, and all this kind of interesting stuff about collaborative teams and participatory design and all these you know fantastic phrases. So it's evolving. It's evolving. But I do think fundamentally it has a lot going for it as a, as a way of building stuff. Very good. Appreciate your thoughts on that. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the things I really liked about the book, I kind of, I alluded to earlier is um, not just the pragmatic nature of it, but also the, um, the, how, how you take you, you give very specific steps for people to do certain things. Mm. And, you know, that's not for everybody, of course, you know, <laughs> Um, I like having done user experience design for several years myself, a lot of it's like, yeah, I, I kind of knew that, but yeah, I, sure. I really like how you, I mean, it, it goes to your audience, but you, you give very specific ways to do certain things. And a lot yeah. of the UX books I've read have, you know, they kind of hit the surface, do, do a lot of the philosophy, um, maybe give a process in general, how to do something. But mm. then they say, and after you do your wireframes, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. I like how you, you know, you're like, these are the good kinds of pens to have. <laughs> Here's how you do shading and, and shadows and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. What was, is that something that you uh, went, went from, from the beginning to be very specific 
or, or uh, was that something that you figured out that you kind of needed to do as you, as you went along with the book? I think it was really, really the intention from the start. Again, I, I, I was largely basing this off my experiences of mentoring. Um, when, you know, to begin with, I used to give those kind of high level uh, sweeping statements as well. It's like, oh, this is easy. Just do some wireframes and then, um, you know, create a quick concept model. And, and, and you know, the people I'd be talking with were like, whoa, slow down. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Concept model. How do I do that? Oh, oh, right. Okay. Well, you know, and I get the pens out and I start drawing. It might look a bit like this. Okay. Well, that's great. But how do I get to that deliverable? Like, oh, right. Well, okay. Um, and so it forced us, well, both this, this kind of, um, this attitude forced us both to think very structurally about how do you get to a particular outcome via a particular deliverable, via a particular process? What are the steps involved in that? As you rightly point out, there will be people, um, who've been doing some elements of user experience design for a while, you may find that a little bit too prescriptive. And that's, that's cool. Um, you know, if you've been doing this long enough, then you know that there are tons of different ways. You know, there are dozens of ways you can achieve, you know, any kind of result. Um, what, we, what we tried to do with this book was to provide uh, the reader with a sufficient toolkit that was well-equipped for the environment they were in. Right. So, you know, where there isn't, uh, you know, huge amounts of budget or time or whatever, we would say, okay, there are plenty of tools available. Here are three or here are two or here's even one that's got us results in that kind of thing before. So it's like we've done the hard work for you in terms of you know, saying, yeah, yeah, there's all this stuff, but seriously, just don't worry about it until you're, you know, a senior UX person or you've got the, you know, the management role or, you know, you've got a good buddy up in the executive team and then you can start to influence <laughs> them that way. So yeah. it was definitely part of our intention. As I say, that largely came, you know, from our, from our knowledge of our users, yeah. I suppose, which I guess is practicing what, what we preach to an extent, which I suppose is quite, quite good. Well, it, it really is one of the best manuals, like a how-to manual of UX design that I've ever read. So great job <laughs> on that. And, it, and, you know, just for let all your listeners know, it's not just for undercover folks. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a part of a maybe seven-person, I've lost count, team of UX people at our company. And, um, you know, it's, it's great to have this at my desk so I can flip through and go, okay, this is what the KJ method is or whatever <laughs> to kind of refresh my memory as things go on. So. Sure. And that's, that's definitely a big part of it. We wanted, we knew that, um, you know, people with several years experience wouldn't, um, you know, be learning fewer things from it, I suppose. I mean, hopefully they still learn some things from it. I'm sure there's still stuff that's new, but we were, quite eager to have have the book sort of sat on people's desks as, as a bit of a reference. They know they could dip in. Oh, there's a really good de- um, depiction of a particular method right. or things like the validation stack that we talk about, how to win a debate and so on. Well, that's, that's exactly how I've, how I've been using it. So I think yeah. for, for beginner folks or folks just kind of trying to go in from the inside, it's great f- from the process and the exact steps, but for someone doing it a while, it's great just as almost as a reference manual. So yeah, exactly. Because awesome. there's only so much you can hold in your brain. Yeah. I mean, I I use it as a reference. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm doing a kickoff with a new client, so I'll be reading. You know, I'll be reading on the way up. Just just the kickoff questions bit, so I can remember. Because you know, I know I put a lot of thought into this previously, and I can recall sort of you know two thirds of those questions. But I'll always forget something. So it's nice to have that knowledge out in the world, even if it came from my head originally. That we can then you know use so yeah a reference material of that kind is, is really useful it's not just for developers uh you know looking up css selectors and things like that it's, it's just as valuable for designers too 
And uh, I wanted to switch direction or change directions uh, a little bit here. I had also um, uh, listened to, and Steve sent me the link here, that you spoke at South by Southwest this year with your co-author and oh, yeah. uh, talked on the music of the music of interaction design. Yeah. And I really enjoyed listening to that because it was uh, a whole different, you know, just talking about music and some of the principles of music. And I'm a musician and so is Steve, actually. You know, I could definitely relate to that. And I thought it was a... Uh, it's just a fascinating talk, and I love it when people have like have that ability to relate information from a different field to their professional field because you tend to see things, you know, you see things you don't see when you think about it the way yeah. you do every day, day in, day out. Um, right. What inspired that? What inspired that talk, or what's behind that? And are you a musician as well? Yeah, so I, I I'm I got a little bit of classical training as a musician, not 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 much, I'm not spectacular, but you know, as a fairly accomplished violinist at school and um, played in bands and sang and things like that at university, obviously much less time and much less, less youth to do that kind of stuff now. But um, I, I did see uh, a clip of you online singing twist and shout karaoke style. So good, good <laughs> I ate some it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping that wouldn't leak out. <laughs> well, I've lost the link, so no worries. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> um, <clears throat> So I can't really remember where that came from. You remember when I was talking about that slightly pretentious talk? Uh, that was actually an earlier version of that talk. So oh, okay. it's 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 a little bit of a stretch at times. I mean, you can be cynical about this sort of thing and say, you know, you can go to any design conference. And there's always someone who will have a talk that's sort of 25 minutes about a completely different field, and then they'll try and loosely wrap it up and say, and this is like design because... Right. Sure, sure. Um, we wanted to try and do something a little bit more subtle and a little bit more interesting than that. Um, but they're, you know, music and design are both these very hard things to describe. They're, they're both quite ineffable, which is a, mm-hmm. is a word I, I, I'm fascinated by. She used to call my blog ineffable. Um, <laughs> and it just struck us, well, there must be some parallels between the notation you see in music. You know, how do you turn that into a performance that moves people, that creates emotions you know, that creates experiences. And then a little light bulb kind of went off and like, creating experiences? Wait a minute, that's what we do. <laughs> um, so we just kind of came down the other side of the mountain and, and realized, you know what, there's a lot of a lot of similarities in the way that we try to engage people. Um, and also, you know, more, more structural similarities like uh, rhythm and grid and harmony and so on. Mm-hmm. So we were looking for the pieces to tie those together. It's definitely one of those talks that... Um, you know, the opposite of the book, you wouldn't. No, I don't think anyone would have come away from that talk thinking, "Well, I now know how to design better websites or apps or whatever." But hopefully, you know, the idea is just to twist people's brains a little bit so that they spring back in a slightly different direction and make those little connections and come up with little insights of their own. Yeah, so I think yeah. there's a role for both uh, both extremes. There's there's the role for the kind of pedagogic, uh, you know, tutorial kind of manual, and there's uh, definitely a role for the kind of pretty far out hey, what do you think about this? You know, throwing it out there and seeing yeah, what interesting connections emerge. Definitely. Well, it certainly sparked some creative thoughts in me and I don't have answers to these questions, but, you know, two mm. thoughts that struck me in your, or that in your talk there were, um, you know, can we create design that meets expectations like the pentatonic scale meets mm. expectations in music? Yeah. And, and I don't know how to do that exactly, but... You know, it does strike me, it did strike me listening to that, that, you know, there are conventions and expectations when someone goes to a website and those have been building over time with the web being about 20 years old now. Mm. Um, and so I think that can be done. So yeah. that was a new thought. Yeah, I never related those two and that 
made a lot of sense. And there's an interesting kind of extension of that, I guess, which is that how much of the, the convention that we see on the web and in general kind of digital product design, how much of that is learned convention and how much of that is natively intuitive yeah. it's the old kind of nature versus nurture debate mm-hmm. are these things logical and consistent and intuitive because that's the way everyone else does it or because there's some inherent property some inherent harmony in them that makes them easier to understand yeah, mm-hmm. i've wondered that a lot and i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah those are really hard questions when you figure that out let us know <laughs> exactly when i figure it out i'll probably uh Write a book. Use it to my personal advantage. (laughs) (laughs) We would expect nothing less. We hope we'll help you crush it with that knowledge once you figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I've got one last case study, and we'll have one short question at the end, then we'll let you go. Okay. Um. This is this is uh this is something that has uh come up. It's a true story, but it's not web based UX related. So, but hope it doesn't throw you off too much. I'm just kind of curious on your opinion on this. Um, so a company I know make they make electrical boxes for homes, like where all the switches are and circuit breakers and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they decided to make a better fuse box in every way, make it user centric. They did a lot of testing with users, interviews, research, and they made a box that was essentially easier for the electrician to put in the house, but also easier for the homeowner to use ongoing. Mm-hmm. And they were cheaper. Easy to use, safer, more environmentally friendly, et cetera, but they didn't sell at all. Mm. They finally found out why, because homeowners didn't buy the box directly. They bought mm. it from their electrician mm. who actually bought the box. Mm. And it turns out that electricians don't make anything at all in selling the box, but they make it on the labor to install the box. Oh, right. So making it by making it too easy to install, they inadvertently removed the profits from the electrician. So they in turn choose to instead to install the hard the hard to install box instead of the easy to use box. <laughs> That's awesome. So when you're like I don't know I don't know if there, I, I didn't think long enough to see if there was a corollary here to the web but how in this kind of situation what do you do here because you almost have the user and the customer are all two separate things and who do you design for? Yeah. Um the the general parallel I guess I would see to the web is you you work for a company that profits from uh, making user experience a lower priority. Uh, so, you know, you, you could right. say a simple example would just be throwing in more advertising space or forcing people to view content split over 20 pages rather than five to increase their page views and so on and so on. Um, what this comes down to ultimately is, is an ethical debate for me. Yeah. And it's something yeah. I talked about a lot at the IA summit yes. um, recently. Um, in short, what I do, I quit. <laughs> when I go somewhere where I don't, where I don't have to convince people of the inherent unpleasantness of their behaviour, I go somewhere where the values are aligned. That, I, that it's a given that they wouldn't do something that defrauds the customer in that way. Right. Um, however, I recognise I'm in a relatively privileged position that I'm. You know, I'm, I have the opportunity to do that to to be a bit more kind of footloose with my employment or whatever um but it's a really tricky one ultimately if the value system is against it or if you know if, if capitalism is against it then those are pretty hard things to tackle you know one of the things that's on my mind again coming back to this kind of big picture thinking stuff is can you actually do fantastic user-centered design 
within capitalism. Um, it's definitely a constraint <laughs> at times. Yeah, budgets are um, never unlimited, right? <laughs> I mean, but equally, you know, any other form of, of politics would be as well. But you start rubbing up against all these kind of interesting issues there. Um, so you can you can try try your best to have an effect on a local scale, but the best way to get around that is to be the person who makes those decisions, is to be the person at the top of the tree who sets the ethical agenda and sets the values of the company. And that's, yeah, that takes, you know, 20, 30 years. <laughs> well, that's a little bit, that's a bit what you spoke to at, at the, the IA Summit. Right. As far it, as uh, moving up and becoming the, the decision maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if absolutely. If I remember correctly. And also, I mean, there's, there's that or also moving out and becoming a decision maker. I think one of the things I perhaps wish I'd talked about a bit more at the summit was um, that if you're stuck in a company with a value system that you just don't agree with, then a good way to motivate them is with a competitor who does have a value system that's more aligned to good design because they should kick their asses. And I'm pretty confident that that's the way that would go. So there's something to be said for, you know, if you disagree with the way it's being done, quit and do it yourself and do it better and prove that good design actually delivers better profits and happier customers and all this sort of stuff. Again, pretty sort of, uh, you know, revolutionary, you know. Uh, well, I, I love, I love, talk, but. yeah. <laughs> well, I love your thought process and I'm really glad that you are kind of out there saying, you know, we need to be ethical about the stuff we're doing, not just let's make a buck, but right. whether it's user experience design or web development, like Ron uh, deals with a lot, you know, if we're doing it for the right reasons to help people or make the world a better place, et cetera, then that's what we need to focus on and not uh, compromise on a lot of that stuff. Absolutely. And I think if you do the right thing, the money generally follows. Mm-hmm. I if, agree. But if you pursue the money, first of all, then the right thing does definitely not necessarily follow. You might find yourself pursuing lots of different routes that ultimately have a detrimental long-term impact on the viability of your business and the, um, you know, the nature of your soul and <laughs> whether you'll go to hell or heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so we have uh, one more question for you. Uh, as you are aware, our podcast uh, name is Einstein and Sock Monkey. And so we like to ask people the question, so what has influenced you more, Einstein or Sock Monkeys and why? Uh, that's an easy one. I have a physics degree, so it's Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> we keep coming across these web people who have physics degrees. Ron, <laughs> it, Ron is one of them. Right. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> Einstein, just just the amount that he changed the world, just how far ahead of his of his peers was, is is pretty much unmatched. Um, sock monkeys have had less of an impact. I'll plan for Einstein. Very awesome. good. Well, thank you for your your uh, your thoughts on that. That is wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks so much for your time today, Kenneth. And we'll make sure to get with you when your next book comes out. Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Thanks for having so us. Take care. All right. Cheers. Ron, what did you do? You have you had some thoughts about what? what you yeah. About? Well, it was a really fun interview. I really enjoyed how wide the topics ranged. Yeah. You know, because it went from user experience design to him moving out of Clear Left and then what he's doing, writing the next book on mobile. Yeah. And the future of the web. And we talked about agile. We talked about music. We talked about physics very briefly and stock <laughs> monkeys. It was that was fun to me. But one thing that was really interesting to me was so the, the basis for his book, mm-hmm. um, the was, wider web. Uh, no, the, 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 the current book. The current book, yeah, okay. user experience, undercover user experience, uh, was based on his experience as a mentor. 
So I didn't realize that he has been mentoring user experience people for several years. Yeah. And that's a really intriguing, you know, I'd like to learn more about that and what he's been doing with that. And like, is there a formal structure? Is he doing it on his own? I think he was doing it, he was through, doing it certain... through the IA Summit. And I'm a member of the IA Summit. And what you can do is either sign up to be a mentor or a mentee. mentee. Uh-huh. <laughs> is that the right word? Yeah, that's the right word. Um, and, and you can, you put in your uh, preferences and, and there's there's a definite structure and you can see what you're wanting to do with your career where you are now and they'll search out a list of people and they'll say you know contact these people and we'll uh, hook you up with them and you can figure out which one you want to work with it's really cool actually I recommend it that's neat I mean that was interesting and the other part that I thought was very helpful and interesting and lots of stuff in there but uh one was you know I as you and I had been talking about the book before the interview, I felt that parts of it were very basic and right. and very um, proscript, proscriptive. And that's just not my style, generally speaking. So it was frustrating. Reading the book was frustrating for yeah. me because of that. Um, but it was interesting that he commented, because you had asked about some of the detail level that they had put in there and that you liked that, I think. Uh, at least you commented, I believe, that it was targeting their, you know, the audience. Which right. Was, yeah. And he said, yes, it is, you know, some people will see this as prescriptive. Um, So it was just neat to hear that that was intentional and that that was to reach their target market and that it's it's, uh, doing what they want it to do. So that's really neat um, that it's working that way. Yeah, it drove me crazy, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you go into it thinking this book is for me, Mr., you know, I've been in the web world forever, um, then I could definitely see that's frustrating, but it, Knowing, like you said, knowing how what their audience was, their purpose behind it, and you know that was your first question for him is, you know, why did you why write, did you write the book? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if, if you understand a lot of times why someone wrote something or says something, then it helps a lot. So yeah, absolutely. But overall, it was a great book and a great interview, and I recommend anybody if you haven't gotten a copy, uh, go ahead and get one. It's at undercoverux.com. And wanted to mention also that you can find Kenneth, uh, his writings and so forth at kenneth.co.uk. And it is spelled, attention, it is spelled C-E-N-N-Y-D-D.co.uk. And his Twitter handle is uh, Kenneth, actually, is C-E-N-N-Y-D-D. Excellent. So thanks a lot to Kenneth for doing that. And hopefully, as we mentioned, catch him on his next book. So for our next book club book, uh, we haven't announced the date yet when we will discuss this, but it will be probably a couple months down the road, so there's plenty of time for people to uh, pick up the book and read it and comment on it and so on. Uh, But the book we're selecting is called uh, Resonate by Nancy Duarte. And Resonate, the subtitle is Present Visual Stories That Transform Audiences. And it is an awesome book. It's about creating presentations, um, you know, PowerPoint or otherwise. Right. And this is basically what her company does. Uh, they create uh, presentations for companies and individuals, and they've been at it for a long time. And they're really good at it, and it's a niche market, and they are just fantastic. But the book is awesome. It's uh, it's beautifully designed. You okay, know, the, can I take a look? Yeah, the typography and the layout of the book, the book design itself is a beautiful study in, in what I would consider absolutely top-notch design. And... Uh, it really underlined talks, a lot of stuff. Yes, I have. <laughs> I like writing in my books. Uh, it's one of the things I like about having real books in, the, in my hand. I use the highlight feature on my iPad all the time on my iBooks. Um, 
And so her, um, it really is like all of the inside secrets about, in a way, of what her company does. So they're really laying it all out there. I saw a great interview with her on the uh, training site lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com, and there's an interview with Nancy on there oh. about the book, and she talks about that, that, you know, this is really, this is what they do. Um, but one of the really exciting things in there is that, you know, she has identified, if you will, a cadence or a pattern to presentations that really motivate people to change their behavior as a result of a presentation. And um, I'm sure many, you know, many of us give presentations regularly and uh, want to make them better and, you know, want to effect change in our audience. So it's, it's very inspiring. It's got a lot of practical stuff in there. And even just reading the first quarter of it will change the way you organize your presentations. So uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. I'm only about halfway through it, so I'm looking forward to finishing it up. Well, it's um, fun to flip through. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> Definitely want to get this because I, I, I've given a lot of presentations in the past and, you know, continue to do so. So, yeah, awesome. So, wonderful book. I've put a link on the show notes to it on Amazon in case you want to buy it. It's normally 30 bucks. Looks like it's uh, available for about seventeen fifty currently nice. through Amazon, so it's a great discount. Uh, not sure if there's an ebook version or not. Uh, there might very well be. Uh, but great book, so check it out. Leave comments, and if you've read it already, that's great. Or if you've listened to webinars by Nancy or anything like that, seen her talk, uh, if you would, leave some comments on the, on the website. So our podcast sponsor, as you may know, is audible.com. So for the listeners of Einstein and Sock Monkey, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial as a member so that you get member rates for other purchases uh, to give you a chance to check out their service. And my Audible pick for this episode of our podcast is I Was, W-O-Z, mm. by Steve Wozniak and Gina Smith. Have you read this or listened to it? I'm in the middle of listening to Are it. Are you really? That yeah. is hilarious. So what do you think <laughs> of it? It's really funny. I think it's really good. It's very interesting. Isn't it? I found to it hear, fascinating. I mean, he sounds like a hilarious guy. Totally. Yeah, you, I think you get a real sense of his humor and his personality through it. Yeah. And, and it's read by a regular reader, but from uh, listening to some other podcasts of people who know Waz, they say that the, uh, the reader sounds almost like Waz himself. Yeah. So I think that lends even more to the, the entertainment value of the book. Uh, but, you know, he's without a doubt one of the icons of computing, right? Yeah. You know, the rise of personal computing. He made the Apple computer. That's him. All him. And I mean, Jobs marketed it, but uh, Waz Waz built it. Yep. Um, so lots of interesting stories in there, and you know, I learned a lot of wacky things. Like I had no idea he was one of the initial investors in the Shoreline Amphitheater in the Bay Area. That's his. <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> really weird stuff. And I I teach airplane. You know, I teach flying on Beechcraft Bonanzas and Barons, and he used to own a Bonanza for a short time, and really? he's a pilot doesn't fly anymore but uh you know so lots of really interesting personal things and lots of really great stuff on the foundations of computing so highly yeah, recommend cool. definitely you'll love it so to download your free audiobook today go to audibletrial.com forward slash einstein and again that's audibletrial.com forward slash einstein and get your free audiobook all right and now it's time for our social media minute with nick armstrong I'm Nick Armstrong from WTF Marketing, and this is your Social Media Minute. You know, as my hairline trends towards baldness, I find that I have a growing, burning hate of Einstein. Speaking of trends, if you've ever gotten 
bored Googling yourself, you might want to know that you can now find out what other people are searching for and in fact in what quantities. For example, at the time of this recording, Sonic the Hedgehog is the number two hottest search in the United States, and No Pants Day is currently number seven, trailed closely by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in number eight. You can find out more about Google search trends at google.com trends. If you wanted to put in any keyword, you can find out what the top region searching for a certain term is, the top cities, and even the top languages. It gives you a graph based on the average worldwide traffic of the term that you enter. You can also enter multiple terms to see how the two terms compete against each other. The Trends tool also shows you spikes or lulls and important events that might have contributed to those. I also wanted to mention that Facebook has a new method for creating custom tabs in pages. The old FBML app is now gone. And I'd just like to point out that in the Bible there's a typo. When they mention the meek shall inherit the earth, they actually meant the geek, and they were talking about Facebook. I'm Nick Armstrong, and this has been your Social Media Minute. Next time, I'm looking forward to hyperventilating as I try to explain how to create a custom tab in Facebook without using the FBML app. Good luck, non-geeks. Back to you, sock monkey. And Einstein, I still hate you. So my blog of the episode is wordpress.org news. So this is where I got the details about the WordPress 3.2 beta release uh, coming up, or I guess the beta has been released. And uh, it's a great blog. Um, if you develop in WordPress or have a WordPress site, I think it's one that you uh, would be well, I don't know what the right word is, but it would be great to be paying attention to this blog. Yeah. They also talk about uh, one of the key reasons is not only the beta releases, but they talk about security updates for WordPress, which obviously are important to do. And it's not too um, overwhelming. There's just an average of, I would say, two to four posts per month. So it's easy to uh, check in weekly or put it into your RSS reader and uh, get updates about it and keep on top of the latest WordPress developments. They also, by the way, do have a post about summer WordCamps in 2011. And there's a lot of locations around uh, the world, actually. So a bunch in North America, but a bunch in Europe as well. So um, check those out. I went to WordCamp Boulder last year here in Colorado, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. If you can make one near you. Yeah, you actually spoke at it, Yeah, I did. Steve. Yeah, it was a great talk, too. So anyway, if you can make a WordCamp um, somewhere in the world uh, this summer, I recommend that as well. And I'm glad you, you pointed this blog out because I always, for some reason, I have this mental block about looking at blogs of companies that I use because <laughs> hmm, I, I tend to look at blogs that? I look at blogs of like news organizations or you know a UX blog or whatever but I never think to look at WordPress's blog or Google has a, a blog for just about every single service they have and you can find out a lot of great stuff that exactly. can really help you right from the horse's mouth exactly so to speak so thanks So in closing, I uh, want to give a big thanks out to Josh Mulligan for doing the show notes, uh, to Nick Armstrong for doing the social media minute, yeah. and to The Hive, uh, which you can find at HiveFC, which is HiveFortCollins.com, also works, they're forwarded to each other. And that's our shared office space here at the corner of College and Mountain in Fort Collins, and that's where we're recording our episode. Yeah, and make sure to visit our website at EinsteinAndSockMonkey.com. And uh, follow us on Twitter as well. It's at Einstein Monkey, if, if I'm correct. That is correct. And uh, also, uh, you can find me, Steve Martin, at clevercubed.com. And Twitter, I'm also at clevercubed. And uh, you can find me, Ron Zasadinsky, on Twitter at Ron underscore Z or on the web at codegeek.net. Yeah, and uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes if you haven't yet. 
and uh, rate us there as well. So anything else, Ron? Uh, no, I think, uh, think that's everything on my mind at the moment. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you all next time. So long. Einstein and Sock Monkey is sponsored by CodeGeek.net, a full-service web design and development agency, and CleverCubed.com, providing user experience design, usability testing, and information architecture, and presented by Ron Zazadinsky and Steve Martin. Music provided by the band Black Lab. Find them at blacklabworld.com. Stop.